Welcome to They've Made Us, a podcast that is a celebration of passionate people and the ideas that motivate them. I'm Helen Chersky. This is Robin Ince. Um, oh, look at that little wave. A little wave. Oh, a little wave. Um, and for each episode, we're going to have two fabulous guests, and we're going to invite each of them to tell us about two people, two people each, who have inspired them or motivated them, and these could be real people or fictional people, whatever they think has made has had an influence on their life. Robin and I know about one of those, but uh, the other one is secret because producer Trent likes it that way. Um, so what we're all about doing here is just poking around in the interesting ideas of our collective human history. Because I think that's the great thing about all of this is that none of us are alone. We are part of a species that has done many great things and, and we carry that with us all the time. And so what, let's talk about it. That's what this is all about. And we are recording this at the Royal Institution here in London. Um, and we've got a very enthusiastic audience. Audience, give us a whoop. <laughs> that, is, that is a very good whoop. Okay. Um, that felt like a Milgram test, the way you did that. <laughs> we have a very enthusiastic audience. Give us a whoop. Well, we a man in the white coat told me to take a whoop, and I did. Then it led to the electroshock therapy. Carry on. Just because you were scarred by one of the Christmas lectures, you wrote, uh, does it, Robin was given, do you want to tell the story? Yeah, of I loved it. It didn't get scarred. I don't know if you'd be, I'll ask actually both of our mm -hmm. panellists, even before we've, we've um, how do you feel about having a magnetic pulse uh, to the left-hand side of your brain, the motor region, to stop you being able to talk for a moment? How would you feel about that? Go on. What do you reckon? I can't talk. Because <laughs> <laughs> what do you reckon? Would you, would you, would you be, I, are you pro or anti? I, I don't know. I, I'd like to give it a go. Yeah. I've had it done to me. I loved it. Have you? I didn't love it. It's like not. It felt really like being, it felt exactly like the time I was electrocuted. Trying like to the be. other time you were electrocuted. Yeah, yeah exactly. Which is also this for a Christmas like, lecture, by the no, way. No, I was trying to mend my, my washing machine and I forgot to take the plug take the plug out of the washing machine when you're trying to make it. And I literally put my, the screwdriver in and I was thrown back against the wall by 240 volts. And you, you shudder and your brain's jarred. And that was bad, but it was self-inflicted. And then someone said, in a person in a white coat, oh, I'm going to do this for you because you won't be able to do your normal motor actions and it'll be brilliant. Everyone will see that you're an electromagnetic being. And I was like, okay, <laughs> thanks. Once enough. Really, honestly, it's painful and awful. Isn't I it? didn't find it painful at all. I think you were bringing. I think a lot of that was psychosomatic mm. due to your clumsy Probably. mending of a. Uh, mm. It's one of, one of the many reasons you've never been asked to be in any pornography. You'd be the worst washing machine repairer. <laughs> um, the, uh, actually, mend the washing machine, wouldn't they? Yeah, the, uh, but no, it, it, I, I would recommend it if you. I mean, check they really are a neuroscientist beforehand. You know, don't just if someone's on a. Hey, come over here. Do you want a magnetic pulse to the left hand side of your brain? Yeah. But I just found because I'm not good at dangerous things like actually what I would you know physical danger abseiling all of the kind of things you do Helen I don't like any of that peril but peril of people kind of you know doing brain scans on me giving me magnetic pulses all of that kind of stuff I you absolutely love so it you were so excited by it because we were doing yes. nine lessons and, yeah. and I was hosting for the first bit and you arrived from the Christmas and you marched down the thing when I was in the middle of introducing someone and you were like I've just had a thing they shut me up yeah <laughs> <laughs> They're never going to shut me up again. <laughs> yeah. 
Because yeah. um, if you haven't noticed, Robin quite likes talking. <laughs> oh, I like listening as well. It's true. Yeah. It is true. It's the speed in which I talk. I think that's it. Because it, it was considered that with the because uh, uh, when I did this show Reality Tunnel a while ago, I spoke so quickly that when they couldn't fit it into the slot that it was meant to fit into, my producer friend said normally we'd just speed it up a tiny bit and no one notices, but we found out you were already talking at maximum speed for comprehension. <laughs> so I do understand that. Um, well, we should introduce the two guests we have on stage with us. Uh, and our first guest this week is Anjana Katwa, who's an earth scientist and an advocate for diversity in the geographical, geoscience and nature conservation sectors, which is quite a lot of everything. Mm. That's very impressive. Um, and you'll have seen her on a range of TV programs. And she has a very special interest in not just having beautiful fluorescent tops, so we can all identify her in the dusk, but um, in sharing her love of the Jurassic Coast, which is a very, um, you know, anyone who's been to the Jurassic Coast, it is really cool. It's quite a long stretch of the southern uh, coastline. And as a northerner, I didn't know it existed for a long time. But it's very, it's very exciting, isn't it? It's the best place in the world. OK, you can tell us about that in a minute. And I'll second guess this week, because I have to, because otherwise we won't introduce Mark for ages because this is going to go on for a while. OK, our second guest will be known to many people as a past Christmas lecturer here at the Royal Institution, uh, familiar from lots of BBC radio and TV documentaries. He is uh, also, we're in the same department, Department of Mechanical Engineering at University College London. I'm there because of him, not the other way around. And I'm here because of her. We can totally do the two. Oh, right. so, yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, he's obviously uh, talks a lot about material science, has written some wonderful books, and now is getting interest both in compost and the circular economy and how we deal with materials and the problems of ma the problems that the wonderful materials create uh, having a downside and how we deal with that. So he's uh, very enthusiastic about all of that. So. Should we get started? Well, I should also say, Mark, you and I once made oobleck together. Has anyone here made oobleck? You know what oobleck is? Yeah, you've made oobleck. It's fantastic, isn't it? All you need is a bit of blue dye, a bit of cornflour, a bit of water. That's pretty much it, isn't much it? Much less water than you think. Yeah, much that's less water key, than you that's think. That's the key thing yeah. about oobleck. The, uh, and, and we did it for a, a programme about the science of Dr Seuss, which was an absolute joy uh, to do. But t tell people a little bit about oobleck and what it's actually saying about materials. Oobleck is a non-Newtonian fluid, which basically means that it behaves strangely. And it's really odd. It's, um, it, it, it seems like a liquid, and, and you can sort of jiggle it around very gently, and it will just be like a bit of soup. And if you want to dye it blue and call it oobleck, it, 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 you know, you can. Um, <laughs> and then, but if you try, you can actually grab it with your hand. And if any kind of sharp movement, any sheer movement, it turns out, um, it freezes up and becomes a solid. So you can grab the whole thing out of the bowl. Imagine grabbing a whole bowl of soup in your hand, and it's solid in your hand for about a second. And then it will just become a liquid again, and it just drips down your, your wrist. And you can put it back in the bowl, and then you can do it again. And, and it's just this very, very odd, odd, odd sensation, isn't it? Can it's I a point beautiful, out it's counterintuitive, it's that thing, isn't it, yeah. where every now and again, like if anyone here has ever held, say, a meteorite, a bit of meteorite, and it's counterinstinctual because its density, it feels different oh, yeah. to the weight you would expect. And the same way with Ublek is that it's that beautiful thing again where you realise how tuned we are to live in the culture, that everything that takes us by surprise, whether it's weight, whether it's density, whatever it is, you go, hang on a minute, I have to keep opening up my brain a little bit more mm -hmm. to realise that perhaps the knowledge I currently have is very limited by my experience. Can I just point out the massive downside of Ublek, which is clearing it up? Because can you imagine trying to 
move something that as soon as you try and move it, it becomes solid and the rest of the time it's like, mm. I may once have bunged up the uh, sink in the lecture theatre at the University of Cambridge when I was a PhD student, doing a demonstration to demonstrate the difference between wave, and wave particle duality, never mind. Um, <laughs> but I, I blocked up a sink and I left it there and I forgot it and I got an email from the technician in the, uh, the, for the lecture theatre a couple of days later saying, um, so our sink, can you come and clean it up? because I'm not going to do it. And I had basically filled it accidentally because it, it had evaporated a bit, so it had been quite liquid, and it had evaporated. And then I don't recommend that for anybody, ever. I was going to say, I've never heard about Ublek before, but it's the kind of thing I would have done at my daughter's birthday party. Would, it sounds yeah. like a complete disaster in the making, but you become fun. very fond of it. Because like, basically, you, you, it, it's this thing where it, in your hand, it's solid, and then you put it in your hand, and it sort of relaxes and goes, oh, I'm safe now. And you, it becomes a pet. You, you, you can't help but think, Oh, it likes to be with me because it relaxes. And you, know, you quite quickly, you know, it has a personality, very, very strange. It's screaming we had the out pet for rocks and now <laughs> we've got the pet oublick. Yeah. It's screaming oh, out for googly eyes, isn't it? You yeah, just yeah. put them there's, in there. There's a lot going for oublick. That's what I love about it. This sums up the Christmas, doesn't it? <laughs> dad, 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 have you got us a puppy? Even better. <laughs> I've got you some corn flour. <laughs> Although, you have, have you still got that bitumen on your shelf I have in your still office? Got the, yeah, yeah, yeah. So just explain that, because this is super cool. Like, he's had the patience. That <laughs> no one's moved your office. Well, laziness or patience. Of yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the beauty of being an academic. You get an office, and you're there until you die. And um, um, uh, they were doing the roads outside the, uh, the, the department, and tar is an amazing material. It's got, it's got, I mean, it's basically, it is a liquid. Technically, it is a liquid, but it's a liquid over very long periods of time. It mostly behaves like a solid, a bit like Ublik. And I said, I said to the, the people doing the road, can I have a bit of this? Because I, I want it for an experiment. But there's been a long-running, 100-year experiment in Australia to, to map how the viscosity of tar behaves over time. And so they've been ha there's a tar in a, in a glass jar, and we're waiting for drips. And it's been dripping through one drip every 10 years. Uh, so it's solid, solid tar, but it drips. And I thought, I want this in my office, because I'm going to be there for the next 10 or 20 years. So I brought this. this load of tar and I put it on the top shelf and nothing happened for a year and then the second year it was a little bit different and now there's a big drip <laughs> I've been there 10 years but isn't it the case that that experiment in Australia that it did drip and the cameras had broken that morning like they waited yeah, 10 years they, they'd set up <laughs> cameras to catch it and that and they were they were on the blink on and off but they thought well you know what's the chance of being on for the blink when it actually goes and yeah <laughs> they think they're talking about deep time now, don't they, with their yeah. bitumen? But you are talking about the Jurassic yeah, Coast. Yeah. So let, d can we just get, again, before we go into uh, any of your influences, the Jurassic Coast, where do we see it? Where do we define it as beginning? Uh, where is that journey? Uh, it's an extraordinary piece of coastline. It, well, I say it starts, but it's a UNESCO World Heritage Site, and it begins in Exmouth in East Devon and stretches for 95 miles along the coastline all the way to Studland in uh, Dorset. So, it's so it actually ends with a nudist colony. Yes, it that does. That is true about Studlands, by the yes, way. Yes. You start off and you go, I came here for the fossils, and I wish it had remained that way. Yeah, uh, you see all sorts of other different types of fossils, though. But the cool thing about the Jurassic Coast is you're kind of walking through time, right? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, it's amazing because the, the rocks have been arranged in such a way that um, in East Devon you see the oldest rocks. There. They were laid down during the Triassic period about 250 million years ago. And as you move eastwards, the rocks that were laid down horizontally over a period uh, during the Mesozoic period, they were tilted during the formation of the Alps, so they were tilted towards the east. 
So as you travel eastwards, you go from the Triassic rocks in East Evan, the Jurassic rocks are bang in the middle. So if you know Lyme Regis and Charmouth, those are the kind of your classic Jurassic rocks there. And then the Cretaceous rocks kind of poke out the very end around the Swanwich area. So it literally is every step that you take along the coast path, you're taking a walk through time. And, and every time I do that, it just blows my mind that I think every footstep, you know, whether you go west or east, you are moving through time and space. And it keeps falling, doesn't it? Because there was one last week and, and yeah. half of this cliff just falls overnight or during the day sometimes, doesn't it? Yeah, it's incredible, Mark, because, you know, you, there's no warning and, you know, you can see cracks in the cliffs there, but there's no warning as and when this is going to happen. And the most terrifying thing is, is if you're walking along the beach, people will be sitting at the bottom. Sometimes they're clambering around or knocking their hammers into the cliffs to look for fossils, which is incredibly dangerous. But when the rock falls happen, um, they're incredibly spectacular and they release in certain areas. I'm not supposed to say this, but, you know, you're not supposed to go fossil collecting near, near dangerous bits of the coast. But when the rock falls happen, they release sediments onto the beach, which nourishes the beach. But crucially, they release new fossils and that will eventually get washed out by the waves for us to find. Well, let's, let's use that. Let's get to your first person who has influenced you then. Let's hear about her. Oh, she's a fantastic figure, and she's very special because she celebrated her 224th birthday last weekend, and she's Mary Anning. I, Mary Anning is a huge influence for me as an earth scientist, as somebody who absolutely lives and breathes rocks, fossils, and landforms. And I was extremely lucky to um, move to the Jurassic Coast, move to Dorset for work in 2004. Uh, previous to that, I was living in the US for four years as a research student, um, not a research student, a postdoctoral researcher. And when I came to the Jurassic Coast, I, it was really, I hadn't been there since I was a geology student. And you go to these classic places, don't you, on student field trips like Lulworth Cove. And that's kind of what I knew. I, I knew about Mary Anning, but I didn't really know her. And it was only when I started to work um, for the Jurassic Coast World Heritage Site and walking along those beaches that I began to understand this was what her life was like. So Lyme Regis is this tiny little coast, coastal town on the Dorset coast in England. And it's quite quaint and it's very sweet. Um, but if you're a working class girl that Mary Anning was, you know, 200 years ago, it was a very, very difficult life for her. Um, she was very young. She grew up with a father and a mother and a brother. She had lots of other siblings, but, but unfortunately, they, they didn't survive. But she grew up in poverty. Her father was a cabinet maker. Her mother, you know, was walking the beaches um, with her father in their spare time to collect fossils that they sold. They called them curios. But when she was 12 years old, her father died. And so Mary and her brother Joseph would then walk along the beaches to find fossils to sell and to, to try and raise an income for their family. Joseph, her brother, would eventually go on to take an apprenticeship in cabinet making. And so it was down to Mary to, to generate income for the family through fossil collecting. And her and her brother were, were out on the beaches as kids. I mean, you go there now and it's this lovely pastime, isn't it, that you can do with your friends and family. But for Mary and Joseph, this was, you know, this was a real way to make money. So once Joseph went off and did, it, did his apprenticeship in cabinetry, um, she, it, it came to her to literally walk those beaches. And as they were children, they found all sorts of really interesting things. And it was Joseph when he was about... Um, 
I think he was about 12 years old, and Mary was a bit younger, about eight years old, that Joseph found the skull of an ichthyosaur uh, on Lyme Regis Beach. And at the time, people didn't understand what these creatures were. It was like this really strange, you know, it's got a long snout, it's got a big eye, it's got sharp teeth. And at that time, you know, people were, you know, very religious. They believed that the earth was created in seven days. And so these strange fossils coming out, there was a lot of puzzlement about what they meant and what they signified. And Joseph found this skull and then Mary would spend some time and she dug out the entire skeleton um, that was attached to the skull. And that brought them a lot of notoriety and fame. And as Mary walked these beaches and she crafted her skill, she began to find all sorts of amazing things that began to be noticed by the scientific community. And one of her greatest finds much later in her life, um, probably I think she was in her mid-20s, she found a complete specimen of a plesiosaur, which, you know, I've been to the Natural History Museum today. You can see all of her beautiful specimens in the uh, Waterhouse Gallery, the Annan Gallery, as, it call, as it's called now. But this plesiosaur that she found at the time was really strange. And so people, the, the men at the time, the learned society at the time, they didn't really respect her because she was a working-class woman. You know, she wasn't educated, and she lived in this small town, you know, in Dorset. And when she began to find all these incredible specimens, um, they started to take notice, but they also started to take credit. So she would sell her fossils to, to, to the learned gentleman that would come and see her, and the gentleman would take the fossils away, and in some cases, they would put their name on it and say, look at this amazing fossil that I found, and I'm going to write a paper about it and present it at the Geological Society of London. And when she found this plesiosaur, um, learned society at the time, and particularly one uh, prominent paleontologist called Georges Cuivier, he contested it. He said, well, that's that's not what it is. You've made this up. You've put together a whole bunch of different things and made a whole new creature. And the specimen went up to the Geological Society of London at the time, where the people could debate about it. But you know what? Mary couldn't walk through the doors because women weren't admitted. And so although they were talking about her work and her finds and her beautiful drawings, which she drew to describe the fossils, she wasn't allowed in through the doors of the society to defend herself, to advocate for her work and her knowledge. And later on, Cuivier realized that, indeed, the plesiosaur that she found was genuine. It was authentic. And then there started to be a movement towards recognizing her expertise and, and valuing what she had to offer. But every moment, she had to fight for recognition. And for me, as a, as a, as a woman in science, in geological sciences, as a woman of color in science, that story I really resonate with, that fight to be recognized and, and how many hurdles you have to jump through to prove yourself. I mean, I'm very fortunate now that I'm in a position in my career where I do, you know, my voice is recognized and it, it has some, mostly has some degree of respect, but it has been a fight to be recognized. And Mary Anning is, is here with me spiritually in this room because I admire her tenacity and her resilience to keep to keep fighting for what she believed in. Did, did her story, in terms of you know, in in the last 
I suppose really it feels like only in the last decade, there's been a lot of stories of female scientists that had become forgotten stories that have now been brought to the forefront again. Was there a, I mean, and I know with Mary Anning, of course, there was a huge campaign that went on for a very long time to fund a statue for her in Lyme Regis, which does exist now. But was there a period of time where she had been kind of written out of, of the story, of the dinosaur stories? She, at, the t at the time, during the Victorian period, she had lots of friends that advocated for her. People like Henry de la Beach, who we could talk about a bit later because he's a bit odd and a bit strange. So at that time, she was highly recognised as an expert and, and kind of had lots of people that advocated for her. And then you're right. For some reason, her name fell into obscurity. And I think that's partly down to lots of specimens that she sold, that she found, that she prepared and documented, but she sold. And because her name was kind of written out of the notes, she, she generally got forgotten about. So you're right, it's only in really in the last decade or so that we've really begun to understand her contribution to paleontology. And the statue, if you haven't seen it, please do go. It's down to this fantastic campaign by the, well, at the time she was about 12 years old, her name is Evie and her mother, Anya, and they put together this remarkable campaign to fund a crowdfund a statue. And it's in the most phenomenal position, looking out over the beaches that she walked about. And I, I, I kind of feel, I guess I'm choking up a bit because when I see the statue, because we don't have many statues of women, do we, in, in this country? And that was such a long-fought campaign. And when you stand there next to Mary, she's looking out towards those beaches. You feel this sense of achievement for what those two women have achieved in raising the statue. But also, you can walk on those beaches in her footsteps. The, the beaches, you know, regardless of the coastal defences and everything, all the development that's happened, you are still walking on the beaches where she walked. You're still finding fossils now, today, that she would have found similar fossils, ammonites, belemnites, anixiosaur, vertebra, if you're lucky. She found those 200 years ago. So you're, you're touching time in a different way. You're touching that part of human history, but also geological history. It hasn't ended, is it? I mean, that's the other thing. It's a remarkable thing. It's because it's always changed. It's always been chipped away. You, you just don't know whether you walking down that, that beach, because we, we've been down there too, um, you're going to suddenly come across this amazing find. So you could be her. I mean, that's the extraordinary thing. And that's not even a crazy idea. Like, so, bit, so many bits of science are well-trod, aren't they? And it feels like that they're not, there's nothing new is going to come out of that, you know. But this is not the case, is it? And this no. is a real place. It, it, as well, she was quite, um, you know, she, she, it's not just that she was walking along, what, looking what fall. No, she was quite you know, fit and active and up the rocks and climbing and sort of Victorian skirts. You know, she was really, she wasn't just having a nice walk. She was working hard. Yeah, this was her profession, Helen. You know, and you're right, she was in these very kind of heavy Victorian skirts and, you know, the, the, the clothes of the time. But she was intrepid. She was up in those cliffs and she, you know, if she saw something, she had a dog called Trey and, you know, he was rumoured to be sniffing out all sorts of fossils. I love that idea. Um, and she was intrepid. She would absolutely get stuck into those cliffs and, and, and nothing would really stop her from going out. All weathers. She was out in all weathers. You know, and there's in her diaries, I think she talks about the clay being embedded under her fingernails. And unfortunately, you know, if I look at my nails and I've actually cleaned them up a bit today. But, <laughs> you know, quite often when I'm out fossil hunting, 
Yeah, I love it. You get your fingers in there and, and, you know, you're scrabbling about on the beach and who knows what you're going to find. So what's the best fossil you've ever found? I uh, Actually, it was last winter, I think, I found my very first after, what is it now, 17 years of fossil collecting on those beaches, I found my very first ichthyosaur vertebrae. And my best friend, Richard Edmonds, who's this brilliant fossil collector, he said it was like passing my driving test. So <laughs> after 17 years. After 17 years of looking at my first vertebrae. I've always heard, which beach was it, by the way, just out of interest? <laughs> oh, Lyme Regis Beach. That's oh, okay. Because when I went to Charmouth, right, and, and we, you know, we got the little pick and all that kind of stuff, and someone said to me afterwards, yeah, there's almost nothing left in Charmouth because they've turned it inside. You've got to go one further beach up where oh. it's not being done as much. Right, that's Except a good point. there's spinal columns everywhere. Well, th this is a good point. I went out with my daughter um, the last half term and we went to Stone Barrow Beach. Um, obviously, there's a big landslide there at the moment, so you must be careful. Go out on falling tide. So that's our public safety message. But just on Stone Barrow Beach, we found so many little golden ammonites. They're called the pyrotized ammonites. We found little crinoid fragments. And I, I, I just, I was amazed at how much was on the beaches. And everybody was just wandering around. And sometimes you'll find something that somebody's just walked past. And you think, look at that. That was waiting for me. Have you been to that wonderful museum in Lyme Regis, uh, which is a kind of fossil and dinosaur museum? It's not the one that's right in the front. There's one which is, 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 is owned by a uh, husband and wife. And it's this wonderful museum, which is... You know the way has a, it has a disorder that is unexpected, but in a delightful way. It's basically, we found all this stuff, so I've put some of it over there, and I've put some of it over there, and, then there's, and it's just got a real... It has a tremendous passion to it. Does it have a cosmic shambles feel to it? <laughs> yeah, I, I, w I would say, yeah, the shambles, most definitely, yeah. Have you, ever, have you never been there? I think I've been to lots of It's like places. an old church or something, I think. I, I have been in it, yeah. It's, it's chaotic, it's eccentric, it's everything that we love about these British coastal seaside towns. It really, and, and it, I think it's very inspirational as well, though, because you do get, you know, sometimes you go to places that are tremendously well curated and very much saying this is the way science is, and then sometimes you go, and this is also the wildness of the mind when it goes into these kind of expeditions. Yeah, I kind of have a bookshelf that looks like that at home, you know, with all the rocks that I found from all over the world, and they just kind of littered there with no order. And I, I love places like that because what they are is they're a representation of that person's passion and knowledge. And I'm sure all of us kind of have a cupboard at home, don't we, that we try and close the doors on with all our little collections. But I, I just love um, the passion of people who collect things. I mean, I'm a collector. I was collecting, I think my first collection was badges, and then it was rocks and shells and, and then all sorts of things. But collecting is a, is, a real, is a real passion of mine, and I can't stop myself. You know, whatever rock I see, if I, the worst thing is if I'm walking out on a beach and I pick up a rock, then I'm bonded to it, I'm connected to it, and I've got to take it home. So you can imagine how many rocks I have at home now. You know, I found the other day, I was poking about in a box of stuff that come out of storage, and I found my childhood collection of rocks. And I didn't really collect things, but I loved semi-precious gems. And so there's all these sort of amethysts and bits of quartz. And, um, and, it was, I'd and I got the handwriting. Like my, I made a little thing and labelled them all. And I'd forgotten the pleasure I got from that. Just like, look at all these things. Aren't they all amazing? You know, from, di from different places. And like you said, there's some joy in just putting them all on top of each other precisely because it's just all of the amazingness all together without trying to sort of uh, categorize it or sanitize it. It's just like, put it all there. Yeah. 
academia, the perfect alibi for a hoarder. <laughs> well, that's what we discovered. <laughs> also one with a lot of yeah. patience. Yeah, guilty of charge. So, Mark, who is going to be uh, your first great influence? My first great influence is Douglas Adams. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's got to be there. And um, I, I guess, I mean, how do I explain it? Except for, you know, obviously, it's sort of extraordinary, extraordinary person who wrote this series of books, if you haven't come across him before, called The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and, and, and other books. And it's the story of someone who's unremarkable, an un, unremarkable ape man. <laughs> and as a kid, so I, so I came across this listening to the radio, going to bed, and my mum would put the radio on for us and my brothers who I shared a room with. And, she, and now I realise as a parent, that's what you do to get them to go to sleep. You, you get them into bed, you put a story on, and then you leave and have a glass of wine. And, but I, I'm listening there, and I, you've got to remember, I'm like eight or nine. I've had this diet of, this is how the world works, and there's religion, and you've got to go to school, you have to learn this stuff. And it's quite, and like, you're looking ahead at this world and, you, and your place in it, and you're thinking, I don't really want, I don't, where do I fit? Where do I fit? I don't like the things that people want me to be. And then you, the story comes on, and you hear the theme tune, because it was first a radio series, and it goes, dun, 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 dun. and even if I listen, hear that riff now, I'm immediately excited, because it was a new future for me. This was a different future. And it, the story is about an unremarkable ape, ape man, who could have been me or my brothers or any of us, and suddenly, aliens arrive, and he has the opportunity to hitchhike around the galaxy. Everything changes overnight in that one moment. And not just that, because that could be any science fiction story, let's face it. It's all about just the most stupid jokes about <laughs> all of these things that people want you to do in life and chase money and get money and how money itself is, although immensely desired, never happy. And, and, and it, the other thing that I thought was just amazing about the story and really caught me and has continued to delight me, and it's great to have things that delight you for your whole life. I mean, it's a real blessing, isn't it? Is that... You can keep going back to it, and it never gets boring. And that's so hard to do. I mean, it really is hard to do. Um, and, and so he's touched on some things that are just brilliant. I mean, it's a sheer work of brilliance, and almost nothing has beaten it since then in my mind. You know, as a, as a sheer work of imagination, of, of uh, uh, offering us a different way of living, um, you can be smart. I mean, he was an English graduate, and he was asking as good a question as any scientists are asking. And he was coming up with brilliant answers too. And that's the other thing I like about it. It's like, to be part of science, you don't have to be a scientist you know, in your day job. You, you're a scientist by the way you approach the world. You ask interesting questions. You come up with interesting answers. And those books, that radio stuff, is the epitome of that. Like he's, I think it's interesting, actually, because I remember Douglas Adams saying that he'd stopped reading fiction because he'd realised that fiction in the 19th century was to explore ideas that we didn't yet have the technology mm -hmm. to, and, and now he didn't. And, and I, I found it very interesting that he said that because he obviously hadn't... Well, maybe he did realise, but in his fiction, he is asking scientific and philosophical questions all the way throughout. And, and for many people, if, if you've never read any of the Hitchhiker's books, I, I, I think they still work. My son's read them. You know, they still... Radio. They, it's yeah. all about the radio. Or the radio. Well, it, it depends where you first came across it, because for me, it was about the, 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 the book. And, and I lived near Rickmansworth. Rickmansworth was the next town to me. <laughs> and suddenly, Rickmansworth was in a book. So that immediately made it exciting, because Rickmansworth is not one of the great literary destinations. But there's a girl 
in a cafe in Rickmansworth who works out an idea about how the whole of the human race can be happy, and just as she works that out, the earth is demolished by the Vogons, right? So suddenly it was like, that happened in Rickmansworth in this book. And the only other thing that's ever happened in Rickmansworth is Andrew Ridgely from Wham started an unsuccessful wine bar. Those are the two great cultural achievements. So, so from that I was hooked. But then so many of the ideas that appeared to be absurd, and then you find out, well, they're as absurd as theoretical physics is. Yeah. You know, that's an amazing thing. But the great thing, and it's interesting, you can tell from the reactions of the audience. So I also, I know the entire thing off by heart. And we, you know, we can quote this. But what's interesting is you can tell from the audience, like you said Rickmansworth, 75% of the audience were like, yes. The other 25%, I have got no idea what you're talking about. But isn't it incredible? Because that was 1978, I think, the first radio series came out. So, you know, all these years later, this is still quotable by a significant fraction of the population because it's so memorable. Once you like that thing about a lot of people were unhappy because of the movement of small green pieces of paper, but on the whole, it wasn't the small green pieces of paper that were unhappy, right? Things like that, you just carry with you. That thing about Ford Prefect says, uh, Arthur says, oh, it, I don't like this. It's you know, it's like being drunk, and, he, and Arthur says, what's so bad about being drunk? And Ford says, you ask a glass of water. Took me ten years <laughs> to get that joke. <laughs> But and, and it's one yeah. of those things you can listen to. But as a piece of like cultural, like, and it was such a short yeah. thing in retrospect. You know, there were I think was it eighteen in total. There was, and it was, and yet it's it's so influential. It's astonishing. Yeah, it is astonishing. And, and as you say, the philosophical questions are they still are important today as they were then, and the answers because they're absurd in the book don't age because most of the answers we got today are quite absurd, really. So, you know, there's in, in the book, they search for the ultimate meaning of life, the universe, and everything as part of the quest of going around the universe. And they actually find it. <laughs> it turns out there is an answer. Mm -hmm. and, and then they find it, and, it, and it's 42. <laughs> and, and, and Arthur, the um, ape man, sort of being a lead figure in it, is like furious, furious <laughs> that, that, you know, that the answer could be so trivial. And, and then the computer, which came up with the answer, says, oh, no, but see, you have... This is the question. You haven't really resolved the question. And that's such a classic science thing to say, which is if you, you're going to get a nonsense answer if you ask the wrong question. You have to work out what the right question is. But I think it also <laughs> so sums brilliant. up something else, which the quest itself is more interesting. I think if we ever come up with an answer to what is human consciousness, mm. no one will be excited by whatever the equation <laughs> may be. It was the journey of the questions. Oh, so I think that is, is yeah. such an important thing. And also uh, yeah. the commentary. The, com like the commentary, because the consequence of that is that while the computer is working out the question, a whole load of pundit gets... I mean, it's basically Twitter. It is basically Twitter. I mean, <laughs> like, he, he did actually he really anticipated a Twitter. And also, he predicts a lot of technology. He does predict a lot of technology. He predicts that there's going to be these amazing ways of getting around the universe um, <laughs> by, by uh, you know, uh, these hyper... hyper Hyper hyperspace, hyperspatial, uh, yeah, something or other. Looked at it. And, and um, it's invented by a group of scientists, <laughs> and, and, and they're all trying to do it, they're all trying to do it, and then finally they, go, they get drunk and they go away and they, they say it's impossible. And then someone, someone does it by just sort of reverse engineering with a cup of tea. <laughs> and and they, first of all, they're all really excited, and then they basically they say, no one likes a smart ass. And, 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 <laughs> You know, it, it's like There's so, so many true. truths. It's in so it, true that yeah. actually the people who discover these amazing things in the end don't end up with great deal of glory because actually no one, no one really does like a smart ass. Actually, it turns out we humans are quite fickle, even though we want this technology and we love it. But you know, the smartphone comes along, 
And everyone's like, hey, it's great. And they're like, oh, no, it's horrible. It's corroding us. It's trapping us. Oh, who invented that? You know, whatever it is that we, we, in one hand, we love, and then suddenly we'll turn on them. And it's got that all in there. It's so human, the book. What's amazing, I think, the way he wrote, the way he wrote it was that he had to, there were deadlines for the radio series, and he was like yeah. half an hour before yeah. recording. Yeah. He was like, he was a terrible person for waiting <laughs> for a deadline. So it wasn't like he thought about it. Uh, and he was just like, this was what was coming out of his head. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think also it's probably another good example of if you fill your head with enough stuff, because it wasn't that he was just sat there doing nothing. It was that he was someone who was fascinated in a lot of ideas. He also had that Python-esque quality. He had, you know, he'd been, of course, been a script editor for Doctor Who as well, with a great episode called City of Death. And, you know, he was filled with stories. And then suddenly, you know, even though he, the writing led to him having to be locked in hotel rooms, you know, by publishers, because he was so far over the deadline and all of those things. But I think the what comes out in the end. And I think it's a, a, a great sadness that he died so young when he became so fascinated with what was going on ecologically and, you know, the last chance to see, which he considered to be his great, greatest work. You know, here are the, the creatures, here are the living things that are dying out. Yeah, and he was so way ahead of his, the time, yeah. right? He wrote a book about last chance to see as a kind of, basically prodding people satirically to go, look, we're destroying the planet and, y you know, this is crazy, but didn't do it in a kind of finger-wagging way. Did it in a kind of... Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm going to go to these places, and I'm going to see them for the last time. <laughs> and, you know, it, I think that, yeah, we, we're missing voices like him at the moment. It, it, it's, it's hard to navigate the kind of very sh extremist uh, voices out there. They're, they're dominating. And I think Douglas Adams was this incredibly sane, wise, funny person. And the funny wiseness, that combination, is something that I feel like you should be allowed to be funny and passionate. Like... It doesn't make you a less good scientist because you mm. have a weakness for, you know, puns or jokes, right? But it's all about humility as well, <laughs> right? Humility, it's, yeah. it's like this guy in a dressing gown who's just lost <laughs> in the universe, no idea what's going on. Just wants a cup of tea. Just wants a cup of tea. Yeah. And that, that's all of us, basically, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. If it resonates on so many levels. And, yeah, I, I find it, yeah, always, I always find him an inspiration. And if ever I'm sort of... In fact, my, the biggest mistake I made when I written, wrote my first book was, th was to talk to the editor and they say, well, what kind of book is it going to be? I said, oh, my God, I can't believe this. It's going to be a book about my subject, material science, but it's going to be a bit like the, like the galaxy. And you can see his face just go, oh, God, this is going to be a disaster. There's <laughs> no way you can do that. Like, just you have to forget those kind of genius books because if you try to do anything like them at all, you will fail so badly. <laughs> I, I was gonna. You, you say the voices aren't there. What I would say, a, a different voice, but a voice with a great sense of humour as well. Not necessarily always in her books, but Margaret Atwood, who is someone yeah. who a great deal works yeah. in science fiction, has a great humanity, has a great wit. Uh, then, yeah, you know, I think si it's, this is a Robin chance Ince. to celebrate Come on, science fiction. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But to <laughs> celebrate <laughs> science fiction, you know, the, the, I think of people like Ursula Le Guin. I think of people like Kurt Vonnegut. Yeah. You know, all of their yeah. stories, they still work because they're not hooked to a certain. Even though sometimes they are hooked to certain historical events, the imagination and the humanity in them is something that we can still attach ourselves to. Yes. But I, I picked this, a, this cosmic shambles, this, you know, your your brand is is along those lines, right? I can't wait for it to be a brand. That will mean we're <laughs> making money, Trent. Won't that be fantastic? Um, let's have uh, our secret surprise uh, influence then. Who is your secret surprise influence? Right. Um, I'm, I kind of thought about this long and hard, actually, um, and I went all the way back to my childhood from when I was a real stubborn, horrible little girl, um, as my mother will tell you. And I chose George Cranky from George's Marvelous Medicine. And 
The reason why I chose George Clanky from that particular story is because he, that character in the book almost inspired a love for being a scientist. So if you don't remember the book, it, George is left don't at home. It's such a relief because I thought we were going, because I killed my grandmother. <laughs> you know, that was what I was worried was going to be the revelation. Well, Sorry. you know, yeah, my grandmother was was a character. Let's just say that. I gr well. Oh, so that is part well, of it. Well, you, didn't <laughs> want to you, you tried, but you were less successful than George. Yeah, I didn't get the boot polish right yeah. for some reason. Um, I, I grew up in a house with um, seven people living living in it. We I grew up in Slough, and it, it was it was a tough childhood. Um, there were a lot of people in our house grandparents, my parents, my uncle, me and my sister. So it was tough. Um, and I didn't really have many books growing up either because we couldn't afford them. So my mother would, you know, go down to... We'd go into Woolworths and we'd buy, like, maybe one book a month or something like that, you know, the Ladybird books. And I remember reading George's Marvelous Medicine for the first time and just being absolutely blown away by how funny it was and how what a brilliant character he was and how nasty the grandmother was. Um, but, but essentially what that book did for me was it, it kind of fed my curiosity about being a scientist because essentially the book is all about George who wants to knock off his, you know, he wants to get rid of his grandmother who's not a very nice person and she's not a very nice character in the book. But he concocts this medicine to replace the one that she, she has every day. And so he goes around the house, and the brilliant thing is, is you know, when I was probably about eight years old, Jack and Ori did the did the version with Rick Mail. Mail. So you can imagine reading the book and and you know, kind of reading about George concocting this this amazing medicine for his horrible grandmother, and then you watch Rick Mail actually making it on television. I mean, that was brilliant. I don't, you know, you wouldn't be able to get away with that now because you have kids, you know, putting paint and all sorts of lipstick and br you know so, i mean so just for yeah. those who aren't quite as familiar with the story as this is going on george is kind of looking around the kitchen he's testing it out on the chickens right yes that's one right one chicken like grows or grows yeah neck the grows. neck grows yeah. long i mean in a way it's quite it's, it's quite sometimes i wonder how uh you know how many parents had to tell their kids don't do that right do not mix boot polish with but there is, there is a warning in it, though, isn't there? There's a little chicken. bit where he gets to the cabinet and goes, but he didn't take everything <laughs> from there because his mother had... You know what I mean? There's yes, this there little kind of health and safety. Yeah. It's not allowed uh, in the medicine cupboard. Yeah, yeah that's that right, yeah. yeah. No, but he goes to all the animal medicines and all these yeah. disgusting pills and he puts them all in. So, so what he does is he goes around the house and puts all of these ingredients into a great big pan which he's stirring up on the stove and then he tests it out on the farm animals because he lives on this farm. And so he's, he's testing things out. And like you say, Helen, you know, the chicken grows a great big, great big neck or another chicken grows great long, long legs. And he's testing it out and then eventually he gives it to his grandmother. But I think as you're reading that, as a, as a kid like me who was just, you know, emerging into this awareness of asking questions about the world around us. So we talked earlier about what makes a good scientist. Well, actually, curiosity. Curiosity about the world around you. And when I was talking to my daughter about George's Marvelous Medicine, she, gets, she said to me, she goes, I can completely see how that, that is the character that you would choose because George never gave up. He never gave up. He always tried to find a way to make it work. He looked at lots of different solutions. And she said, you're a scientist. That's what you do. You, you nev you've never given up. You are where you are today. And George is 
George is essentially, you know, you know what's George? I mean, it's just occurred to me, you know, in an earlier podcast, we spoke to Chris Jackson, who said he needed a reason to go into science. And it's just like, apparently killing your grandmother is an acceptable well, reason yeah. to do science. You know, enough of a motivation. <laughs> Please don't tell my family. So, yeah. <laughs> it's all right, this won't get broadcast. No, I know. It's all, <laughs> it's all shush. She had a puckered up mouth like a dog's. So did you, when you <laughs> That's were one of my favourite lines. It's a great ever. line in the book. George! George! They are Rick Mail. When you He's were one of my then. heroes. That, that, you see, that, that, that's the overlap. That, like, once you saw Rick Mail being big and stupid and silly, and that, the passion that of that, brilliant. and the combination of the kind of uh, words that Roald Dahl put together. So, but what experiments did you do as a kid then? Did you mix things up, or did you try? Like, were you sort of doing, did you take direct inspiration from that to kind of, you know, experiment with things? Yeah, I think in, in the garden, because, you know, you, you're kind of making all sorts of mixtures with things that you find in the garden, like soil and water and rocks and, and leaves, and you make all sorts well, this is me. I it was just I me that, that did that. Yeah, well, well there potions. we are. Yeah, potions, potions. You know, and then later on, you know, when my daughter was little, she'd do the same thing, and I think this is it. This is where it starts. It's that tangible connection you have with the world around you. It's just trying out different things like that. And, you know, the, the other things that I probably shouldn't mention, it, well, well, anyway, but, you know, <laughs> I... <laughs> I used to, um, well, I, I loved rocks. I, ha I was a real collector of all sorts of different things. But, but my mother never fails to remind me that I loved rocks so much that when I was about three or four years old, I had to go to the hospital multiple times because I used to stick the rocks in my ears and up my nose. <laughs> so I, and, you know, it was just, I was that kind of a child. I just, I was always, you know, mucky That's and playing in the garden. a doll thing to do as well. Yeah, it was, wasn't it? I think it had a terrible influence on me, those books. It feels like it should be the influence on you, though, Mark, because you've gone into your way. This is a great segue into my one. you Let's segue straight over to you. Because my one is, my influence is the first Stone Age person who smelted a rock. That person catapulted us into the Metals Age, and then the rest followed, civilization. That first material scientist, okay, was the crucial thing between the Stone Age, which lasted for a long time. The Stone Age was a long, long time, and brutal, and probably quite boring. And then metals come along, and really get, life gets a lot more interesting. But one person did that, right? One person took a rock, like you, didn't put it in the ear, perhaps put it in the ear, and then put it in the fire. And so the f we think the first rock to be smelled. So you've got to remember, like before this, people are using Stone Age tools. So they, they're chipping away at flints. They've got some wood. They actually have got some sort of glues and stuff from resins and a bit of string. So it's not too, you know, like, but mostly it's fires and, and, and kind of hunting and, and a lot of rain. And then they're like, oh man, we need a much better tool, a tool that when you use it doesn't break. You know, flints, the problem with flints is they're constantly breaking. They're nice and sharp, but they're breaking. Uh, and you can't really make machines, you can't really make, uh, you can't fasten things together very, you know, you can't make nails and so on. Um, and you can't crucially make a chisel that will allow you to chisel rock and make the pyramids, for instance, or cities, or any of the stuff that comes after it. You can't make the tools for agriculture, so you don't have um, agricultural communities. So all of the stuff that comes after the Stone Age is because we invent metal tools, and we but there's almost no metal on the surface of the planet. There's almost none. There's gold, a little bit of gold, but it's a soft metal. It's no good for this, and it's very rare. There's a little bit of meteoric copper and a little bit of meteoric iron. 
and again, very rare and was kind of revered in those, but it, you couldn't make tools out of it because you just didn't have enough of it. So we think somewhere in the Middle East, someone looked at a malachite rock, which is a copper carbonate um, kind of mineral, and it's, it's brightly colored, it's blue. So it's quite likely that it would have been quite a nice rock people would have collected. It's green, malachite. It's green. Be green, okay, mm. green. And <laughs> oh, it's like that gold <laughs> dress, isn't it? And oh, then we right, brought yeah. back all that. Yeah, come on. <laughs> Um, so, so anyway, so this is, but it's got metal in it, and it turns out almost all the rocks around us have got metal in them. But how did they get the metal out? So this is this thing, this is moment of incredible. It's a pivotal moment in our history because you put this malachite in a fire, and it won't really do anything, um, and it may not have been there by accident, let's say. But uh, if you can get the fire hot enough, and under certain conditions, you'll get a, what's called a reduction atmosphere. So it's reducing. It's basically oxygen starving. And it's going to reduce this ca copper carbonate into copper metal. And if you do it for long enough, a few hours, in the morning, you'll find a nugget of copper. And it, I've done it. So it's really extraordinary, extraordinary process. And it's magic. Literally is magic. And once you've done that once, you can just Im imagine, see, that was started off as a rock. And now it's this incredibly important metal. And then you're looking around you and going, well, there's a whole seam of malachite there. And you start making more and more copper, and we have the copper age, and everything changes. And as soon as you know one rock can do that, of course, you've got to try all the other rocks. And so you get the Bronze Age, which is another massive step forward. And then you get the Iron Age, which is another massive step forward. And that's why we named the Age of Civilization after metals and materials, because they are this enormous leap forward. But one person, that one person, saw it, did it. And they must have done it. I mean, they must have... It just. They had to be curious. They had to see the result. They had to... But isn't it likely that this is kind mind. of about observation, that actually yeah. part of the origin of this is that probably someone was making a fire, they left it, they set it up, they put some malachite on it, and yeah. then they noticed. Yeah. And it's that... Yeah. That's a bit funny. Yeah. And it's that moment of actually not just assuming the world is as you know, but going, that doesn't fit. And that's why they're the first... You know, that's why they're a pivotal scientist, right? And that's also why... I, that's how I basically like to work. I like to do. I really like to do. I like to discover. I like to experiment. I like to find things out. I like to have accidents that are sort of, you know, mostly go wrong, but occasionally they go right. And I think this this is the home, actually, of the demonstration, right? And that was the, that was the ultimate demonstration, right? This first smelting of rock into metal. Well, you've also had quite you know, sort of visceral experience with metals. Didn't you have an experiment a few years ago where you made spoons of different metals and, and you had a thing where you could actually experience... The, I mean, you actually, it, was, it, it was a great... I mean, you can explain it, but I, what I remember being impressed by was that there was something there that wasn't going to be a thing you could measure with a, you know, some kind of micrometer in a lab. It was like, you, it was going to be a human thing mm. that might be different for different yeah. people. Tell us about that. Yeah, so we... we I mean, uh, in UCL, we built up this thing called a materials library, so we're collectors, and we have thousands and thousands of materials. And um, we, when people come and visit, we noticed one day that someone was licking the samples, and we were like, don't look, please. Is that a geologist? Well, <laughs> it's actually an artist. We were like, yeah, flamboyant clothes, looking a bit, yeah. And like, don't lick the samples, because it's like health and safety nightmare if you get ill. I don't know who's, who's, who's liable. It's probably me. And, and, the, and they were like, oh, they kept licking, and we're like, okay, if you stop licking, I will try and find out why different metals taste different from each other, because they were asking that question. So I go away and do a literature search, and it turns out no one had done, no one had actually done the, the experiments to work out why does copper taste different from iron, taste different from zinc. No one's done it, right? So I'm like, immediately, I'm like, 
oh, this is a brilliant thing to do. So I, 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 find, I get some funding. <laughs> a miracle in its own right, that. I want to see that, <laughs> I want to see that grant proposal. Leave like, him. Got this great idea, right? Yeah, but then we find out that we, we have to talk to a psychologist because actually tasting, of course, is in the brain. Like, so there's physiology involved, for sure. There's, 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 um, there's chemical potential so that, uh, on the surface, so that that's there for sure. But it's a lot of brain, so we have to get a, a chemist a material scientist and a, and a physiologist, uh, sorry, a psychologist, together for this research. What a great opening to a joke. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and we made a set of spoons of different materials, and we got a whole load of things, uh, a whole load of volunteers to taste them and to tell us what they tasted like. And we discovered <laughs> why different metals taste different from each other. And it was a really fantastic experiment, and we got really good science out of it. But we also um, were contacted. It? Uh, it's because... Um, there's a, there's a chemical potential, reduction potential, basically, on the surface of the metal as you put it in your mouth. And your, it turns out your mouth is a chemical potential sensor. It, it turns out you are very, very sensitive. So even, even if you've never tasted zinc in your life, you blindfolded can tell the difference between zinc, copper, and iron mm -hmm. because you have actually a very, very, very sensitive chemical um, potentiometer in your mouth. And that is, that's an extraordinary thing anyway because everyone talks about salty, sweet, and all the other things, but you have so much more. Um, so, we, Mark, we what spoon would you recommend to help my daughter eat more spinach? Spinach, yes. Yeah. So, um, zinc, zinc spoons... Um, Without, obviously, you know... <laughs> do, do give you a sort of sweet profile, actually. So, if, 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 they, if they are... If it's not sweet enough in the mouth, um, the, just putting a zinc spoon with something that's sort of um, savoury gives you a sort of sweetness. And, in fact, we thought of selling this to um, soft drink manufacturers to put a zinc top around a can so you could reduce the sugar content and still have the sweet taste. And no one's interested. We also, we, we gave a talk about this once. And in the audience, we're talking about all these discoveries we made in this, this research project. And afterwards, this doctor came up to us and said, have you tried it on, on people who are ill? Because there's a lot of anecdotal evidence that when you're ill, your taste buds change. And you know it, actually. Sometimes, I, maybe you've all experienced right. it. You, you think, hmm, there's a funny taste in my mouth. And food tastes a little different. And then you get ill. And so we, <laughs> we, we've actually started an experiment now, which is testing people um, with, with UCL medicine um, to see if we can detect whether taste bad loss is correlated with different uh, medical conditions. And I think oh, you know, so that one moment of just experimenting and asking the question has opened up this whole area of just interesting science, medicine, um, and law. So, so a, chef, a Michelin star chef came up to us and said, what would it be like if we had different spoons for different dishes? Mm -hmm. And we did, we did, a, we did a, with uh, Heston Blumenthal, we did a whole meal where we, <laughs> where we paired up metals uh, for different dishes. And we Can found I, that gold uh, is the best for dessert, by the way. Yeah, that's what yeah. We, yeah. We, we did a monkey cage on, on that. Yes. And, and the best thing to eat a pair with is a golden spoon. And of course, Brian nice. went, yeah, I know. No one else did. <laughs> we, uh, Should we just perhaps do the public service um, safety thing? And are any of these metals that people might lick toxic? Is there anything oh, that yeah, people um, should not lick because we, it's going to be they toxic? They wouldn't let us do the lead spoon. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we put it through ethics, of course. And we, the, we would. And the ethics committee said, said no. They said no. Well, I think the risk <laughs> is actually quite small. But yeah, you're right. Don't, don't lick the lead. Um, um, I mean, copper, actually, you get quite a lot of copper and brass um, cutlery in certain restaurants. Anyway, culturally, there are I've some. Got, isn't there something, is there a, um, a type of drink, a, a Moscow mule or something, you're supposed to have in a copper? 
And I know, yeah, and the only reason I know, because I've got a copper cup that I bought to do that experiment, and I've never done it, yeah. but I've got these copper... So copper's not... Well, I think copper you poison snails with it or something. Yeah, copper's, hmm. copper's very active, and, and in fact is, is um, antimicrobial and antiviral. And so people often coat things with copper that they want to be you know, self-cleaning. Um, and so we have a lot of interaction with copper, and we've evolved with it. So it's, it's, although it's a very active metal, it's not toxic to us under those conditions. It's mostly the, the, the metals that seem to be most toxic to us are ones that we haven't evolved any kind of interface with. So we haven't sort of um, got the kind of, well, they, they seem to, they muck up our system because they basically bind to things that we haven't n developed ways. So for most metals people might find in their lives, yeah, I mean, iron, have at it? So for instance, you can have an iron spoon, it'll rust, and, but that's not going to be toxic to you. But it tastes really strong. But you have to remember that in the history of the world, Mostly people were drinking, eating soup and gruel. That's all they had, most of us. Us lot would have been eating gruel and soup for most of our lives. Um, we'd have been agricultural workers and but happy, probably. We'd had a lot of cider. But um, <laughs> we, the taste of the spoon would have been the dominant taste. It would have been so, because it's very strong-tasting iron, and all wood would have been the other material, which is another very strong-tasting. So when stainless steel comes along, and it's, it's, first of all, it's a miracle. So it's absolute miracle, the idea that, the, that you can make steel not rust. And B, it solves this problem of tasty spoons, because it's almost inert, like you're almost tasteless. Not quite, but it's almost tasteless. And, and not just that, but it was made democratic. Like, everyone has more stainless steel spoons in their life than they know what to do with, right? Like, you don't check in the morning if someone's stolen your stainless steel spoons. You go to a canteen, mm. there's a whole load of them. No one's worried if they're going to put them in their pocket. You know what? I think in our department, in the kitchen, well, I think that's that they check whether someone's stolen spoons. That is actually spoons. true. Yeah, people are starting to steal the spoons. That's how hard our academics are, okay? <laughs> but, um, I so wish this <laughs> was going to end with you playing the spoons. <laughs> I'm disappointed by that. The, uh, there is actually Private Eye has a little spoof column, yes. doesn't it, called yes. My Favourite Spoon. Mm in which a celebrity is asked about their yeah. favourite spoon. And the yeah. fact you've actually made that reality in the Royal Institution <laughs> pleases me no end. <laughs> but I that's great. So, so basically, I mean, but this, no, no one's selling these yet, then? No one's yes, selling they are. Of, oh, you that's buy a set thing. of cutlery? I'm, I feel really bad about this, because Zoe, who's a co-director of the Institute Making, when we first did this experiment, she was like, we should sell these. I was like, we were like, don't we sell? No one's going to buy a set of spoons like for their home. And we, we basically took the piss out of her, and she never pursued it. And then the other day, I was doing a search for spoons. I don't know why I was. And on, I kid you not, you can buy a set of diff spoons of different metals out there to try out on your food. If anyone now, is, someone is, is already for it, selling like it. my birthday is in so November. <laughs> uh, it's, someone has monetized this research, and it was done with public money, so perhaps that's fair enough. Everyone is now <laughs> contemplating that. You know, I once sat next to a, uh, I think he was a theology student at university um, at, at dinner, and he didn't say anything for the whole dinner. And then, and then he, I said, you're looking a bit glum. Are you all right? And he said, yeah, you know, I'm a theolo theology student. And in a teaching session today, I, I failed to prove conclusively that I wasn't a spoon. And it had made him very depressed. <laughs> um, so maybe there was more yeah. to the spoon world. Maybe he should have embraced being a spoon. It's quite Douglas Adams as well, isn't it? Come on, coming back. It's to a little bit more button moon. They were spoons, weren't they? <laughs> that collects to Doctor Who as well, because yeah, Peter yeah. Davison sang the theme tune. But the mundane, the mundane object that turns out to be, you know, a, a talismanic in your life. In his case, it was the towel. Uh, in, the, in my case, mm -hmm. it turns out to be the spoon. And I feel like that unites us. Well, that is a wonderful place to finish, as the audience is all going to go home and go digging in their cutlery drawers to well, see what's in there. I think the main thing, there. if anyone in this audience does do research that leads to a cutlery innovation, realise that Mark made a mistake of not monetizing it. So <laughs> anyone here who invents some kind of magic fork, sell it, for heaven's sake. Mark, you're an idiot.
<laughs> I think these are the words we should end with today. Fair enough. Well, this is worse than when you tried to <laughs> cycle into the Royal Institution yeah. Theatre on the penny farthing before checking the height of the door. Yeah. <laughs> I had to cycle, go around and cycle and go out again, didn't yeah, I? Yeah, I couldn't yeah, stop. Yeah. It was yeah. a disaster. It was a disaster. I mean, it was a lovely disaster, though. If I, well, you know, a penny farthing accident somehow can't help be, but be comical, however much the yeah. person's injured. Just think, just think that you, you deprived the world of that entertainment <laughs> by failing to be... I assume you weren't injured in no, your penny farthing. No, this right. is when they, we reveal that Mark is a ghost. That annoyed <laughs> Brian Cox. Oh, no. I always thought they broke the second law of thermodynamics. But Mark was killed 100 years ago in a penny farthing accident. <laughs> Brian Cox always comes into your show, doesn't he? Oh, As a ghost. always, yeah. Yeah. You. Brian Cox or Brian <laughs> Blessed, isn't it? It's one of the two. Um, okay, right. Uh, that, is, that is probably enough. Robin's looking like he's just been told off now. No, I'm not. <laughs> I was just wondering whether to do the Brian Blessed or not. <laughs> but you made me do it, and poor Arnold's on the sound desk, and now he's in agony. <laughs> so, we hope we've enriched your evening. Thank you to the audience for being here. Thank you to the Royal Institution for hosting us. And most of all, uh, actually, before we thank our two guests, a Patreon plug. And I'm going to say this very slowly and carefully. I keep reminding you, all other podcasts bang on for about half an hour about buy my things. Here's our Patreon, right? So this you is just, just our one little bit. You've just tripled the length of time we're spending on it now. Yeah. Patreon.com slash Cosmic Shambles. There you go. And also, Helen has a book available now called Blue Machine, which you should buy. And I've recently rewritten I'm a Joke and So Are You, which is also available. This still is the shortest amount of using a podcast to try and monetize ourselves anywhere in the podcast world. Excellent. We both know we're terrible at it, so at least we tried. Okay, so our final job for the evening. Pl audience, please thank our two fabulous guests, Mark and Anjana. <laughs> They've Made Us was produced by Trent Burton and presented by me, Dr. Helen Chersky and Robin Ince. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network and is presented in association with the Royal Institution. If you'd like to watch the video version of this podcast, visit youtube.com slash cosmic shambles. To enjoy more great science podcasts, documentaries and live events, visit cosmicshambles.com.